in Matthew chapter 24, and I want to read to you just verses 45 and 46. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In the Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus takes his disciples through a review of what's lying ahead of them. In a sense, he gives them an overall view, I believe, of what will be the experiences and the challenges of the church age. There are going to be the proliferation of wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms will rise against kingdoms and there will be pestilences and there will be famines and there will be earthquakes and there will be persecutions and it will intensify as time goes by and... He's sharing all these things. And there in all this time will also be those whose love will grow cold and there will be a turning away from the faith and there will be a chasing after false messiahs. He basically gives this as a picture and these disciples will believe that they are literally fulfilling all these things because they will see these things taking place with their own lifetimes. But also the Lord Jesus then prophesies of that time when the temple will be destroyed which takes place 40 years after the statement, Jesus is particularly speaking to Peter, James, and John, and Peter and James are not going to be around to see this take place. John will not be in the location of Jerusalem to see this take place as well. And then the Lord Jesus goes on. As we've studied before, we see that the Lord Jesus is hinting at historical events that are coming, such as another 65 years after 70 AD, when all of the worship of the people of Israel was banished in the land of Israel, and where the population of Israel was annihilated and drawn out from the land of Judea, so it went from a population of about 2 million individuals to about 5,000. It was devastating to the people of Israel and to the land of Judea. And The Lord Jesus cast his eyes up from there through all these trials and all these troubles, all the way to the time of the great tribulation and the destruction of the great tribulation. And then he prophesies of that great and horrific day in which he comes back to judge. And in all this context of turmoil and of upheaval, he fixates his disciples on the response that he will find in his own believers and that he wants to find in those that are his true believers And that, to a large extent, becomes the focus or the application of what Christ is speaking about. But one of the things I want you to see as you go through this passage and look at it, there are but a couple promises that the Lord Jesus emphasizes as we read through the Olivet Discourse. One of the promises is that His gospel will be preached in all the nations. That although this turmoil takes place and although this upheaval is happening all around them and although there is this profound persecution that will come upon them and although it looks like the end of the ages is collapsing upon them and they'll be persecuted in every nation, he says. You know, at the same time, he says this gospel will be preached in all the nations and in the very next chapter, as he continues to extend some parables that he shares with the disciples, he also reveals to them that at the very end of the age that he will find his sheep, his people, among every nation of the earth. He also tells us that when he returns and he comes in the last day that all the nations will see him coming and there will be those who will mourn at the sight of his coming. And These are things that the Lord Jesus talks about. This success of their mission, the mission that he's giving them, will prevail even though they will endure and go through all these experiences. The other promise we could find in this text as we read through it and we draw it out is that Christ is promising at the end of all this he's going to return to rescue his people and reward his faithful ones that their faithful, enduring work for the Savior will be noted and will be rewarded, and He will invite 
them to inhabit with him his kingdom which he will establish upon the earth and they will reign with him in his joyful triumph. And so in spite of all that's coming and all you'll see, know this, that your mission will prevail. This gospel will go to all the nations. I will establish my flock and find my sheep in every nation and I will reward you for your faithfulness. I'll return to receive you unto myself and draw you into my kingdom. Now, there is one predominant application that's made throughout throughout the Olivet Discourse. We've emphasized it before. In fact, I think it was actually the very first thing that we emphasized when we began this series. And the application is to endure, to endure. Our endurance, we learned in this passage, and we learned, comes in the midst of great trials and great difficulties and great suffering. And yet, with this suffering... Christ produces, as we see in these promises, a fragrant, powerful expression of his gospel from us. In fact, it is very difficult for us to take to the world a message of the prevailing work of a suffering Savior for the sins of the world if we ourselves calculate that all that means for us is blessing and benefit and happiness. If it doesn't draw from our own lives suffering. And so when the Lord Jesus called his disciples to take up and follow after him and be part of bringing the mission of his gospel, or of his death and his suffering for the sins of people and his resurrection, that if they were to do that, and as they did that, he told them, this is the way you're going to do it. He says, take up your cross and follow me. The very way in which we pursue and carry out the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth will call for us to suffer and call for us to endure through suffering. And yet it is in our suffering that we, we substantiate, you might say, and we illustrate and we give evidence to our great faith and our great hope in the gentle triumph of our Savior through His sufferings on our behalf. This is the way our message gains a place in those who need hope. We show people that God can redeem suffering by redeeming those who in their suffering turn to Him. So endure. Don't be deceived into pursuing. This is part of the message here, and this might be another application. But don't be deceived in pursuing false messiahs who promise riches and ease and a pathway to personal success. Their message is one of escapism, where you bury yourself in pleasure and comfort, delivering to yourself riches and privilege. Avoid those things. It's an escape. It's a pathway into wishful thinking. No, instead, understand this. If you're to follow me and you're to be used by me to bring my message to the ends of the earth and engage yourself in my work, you're going to suffer in a difficult and trying age. Endure. Take up your cross. Follow me. In faithfulness, at the hardest moments in history, Jesus is telling his disciples, your endurance can offer up a light of witness that will penetrate into a lost world and bring many, many to myself. That's the message that the Lord Jesus is giving here. Endure, be faithful, be faithful to the end through your trials, through your difficulties, through the troubles that will come upon the nations. I am going to use you and work through you if you will endure. And then he gives a series of parables in which he basically illustrates for him what he expects his church will endure in. In other words, what they will be engaged in as they endure. And now, in a sense, these parables are not so much commandments, although he tells them to be on guard or to watch themselves to see that these things are being produced from their lives, but they're expectations. They're what he says he will find in those who are faithful to him and those that he received to himself. They will endure in three areas. And the first parable, the one that I want to emphasize this morning is they will endure in caring for his people. 
They will be the faithful house servant who provides food and nourishment and care for the body of Christ, his people, his children. The other thing is they will endure in intensely, longingly, fixedly looking for the bridegroom. They will endure in caring for him and having their eyes on him. Their spiritual and religious experience in the church will not just be a social convention in which they find a club in which they're comfortable, in which they kind of congeal around shared ideas and values, but those who are true will have their eyes fixed upon the bridegroom and they'll be ready to receive him when he comes. And those who endure will also endure in being faithful to his business. They'll engage in seeking to make Christ known to as many as possible, to lead as many as possible to Jesus Christ. And they'll engage in the reciprocal relationship they have within the body of Christ in encouraging one another to grow in their faith and their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll endure in his business as well. And these are the things that the Lord Jesus says he's expecting, expecting to see in those that he comes for and he returns and receives unto himself. This is what he illustrates in these final three parables, you might say, and it's this first parable that I feel like we kind of went over a little quickly. And that's the parable that emphasizes this enduring and caring for the master's household, enduring and caring for one another. And this is where I kind of want to branch out and just do a little bit of a survey of Scripture. I don't have a lot of points in my message. I have one point, but I want you to see it over and over again throughout Scripture because I think really what is being presented to us here is a instruction and an invocation upon us that we would live in love towards one another and that our love for him will be demonstrated in our love for one another and our desire to bless our Lord will be demonstrated in our desire to bless and care for and minister to the needs of one another. That the way that we'll express our love for him and for one another is that we'll also seek to live at peace and in love towards all those around us in the world. And this is something of the focus that's being placed upon them. The Lord Jesus is basically telling Peter, James, and John, I want you to endure, and he's putting an emphasis here, I want you to endure lovingly in caring for my people. In fact, in this very passage, he warns that here's a sign of the drawing away of people from faith at the end of the age and of the dissolution of the age. He says in Matthew 24, 12, that there will be lawlessness it will abound and the love of many will grow cold. And we emphasized in the past that these things go together. When you love something, you follow its rules. You follow after its desires because you love that thing or that object or that person. I love my wife. I do what my wife says a lot of the time. You see, I try to find out what makes her happy and I follow the mystery of her in order to express my love to her. And this is true in anything. If you love it, if you love your nation, if you love your, uh, the society you're in, if you love a subject like math, you follow its rules and then it reveals its treasures and mysteries to you and lawlessness goes along with lovelessness. And here he's saying that there's going to be a lovelessness. There's going to be a lawlessness because there's a lovelessness that takes place. But then he turns to his disciples and basically says, but not with you. My people will endure in loving me and loving my people. And so here's what I want to see as an application for us. And I kind of want to immerse you in a, a series of scriptures. You're going to see in the Gospels, and you're also going to see throughout the New Testament, this emphasis over and over again to all the conduct and all the activities that we do to be an expression of love for one another. In fact, I think what I could do is I could take and show you from the epistles that the epistles, in a sense, are driving forward three primary applications. 
One application is to have our focus on Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. Another application is for us to be engaged together in the mission of the church and the work and the business of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the other application that you'll see the New Testament constantly driving us towards and God's people towards is this application of, of loving one another, of loving one another. And once your eyes opened up to it, you, you start seeing it all over the scriptures. But in the Gospels, let's start there. The Lord Jesus drives home this expression of love and care for his own during the Last Supper, which he ate with his disciples. Take your Bibles and go to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13. I want to read to you verses 1 through 5, which describes and records the last meal that the Lord Jesus ate with his disciples. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. As I read that passage, I'm reminded of the story of the woman who came and anointed the Lord Jesus' feet with oil and wept upon his feet and then wiped and dried his feet with her hair. And in our minds, that is what a wonderful and tremendous portrait of the love she had for the Savior because she had received his forgiveness. But I would ask you, do you think Jesus' expressions and desire of love and expressions of love were less intense than that over his disciples? As he's preparing to go to the cross to provide for their forgiveness and to suffer for their sins, here they are arguing which one will be the greatest in the kingdom. Here they are unwilling to wash one another's feet. But he loves this ragtag band and all their sins. And in love he sets aside his robe and he takes up the towel and he washes their feet. This is the greatest expression of love up to this moment in Christ's actions. It will culminate at the cross. Jesus then gives an explanation for his actions in verses 12 and 15. So go down there in 12 and 15. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Go on to verse 20 here. Just, uh, this is all a message that he gives that just at this time, just at the end of the meal they've eaten together. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I sin receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And again, there is this note of caring and providing for one another. And now in verses 34 and 35, go down a little further. Still the same message, still at this point in time. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Remember, he loved them to the very end, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it's at this point in John's account that Peter mentions, Lord, I'll never deny you. True to you to the end. And the Lord Jesus corrects him. You, you read about this in Luke chapter 22. 
the Lord Jesus corrects Peter with these words in verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. You don't have to go there, but let me read them to you. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. But here's the point I want to point out to you. And when you've returned to me, minister to your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. Again, the focus here of the Lord Jesus is the care they're to show and the love that they're to show from the example in him for one another. And you'll recall, by the way, that after the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead, that the Lord Jesus was with Peter. And John records the account where the Lord Jesus says to Peter three times, basically, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, in essence, Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. And the last time he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. But an answer to Peter's response, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love me. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. The Lord Jesus, in answer, each of the moments says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's a reminder of the very conversation they just had in that upper room when they enjoyed that meal together. This great desire, this great commission that he's giving to his disciples that they would carry forward the love that he had for them to all those that he would bring into his kingdom. When my father was passing away and we gathered around him and he had had a stroke and he didn't have all of his wits about him, he, he did find where his heart was. And what he kept trying to say over and over again to us were instructions on how to care for our mother, the things that she would need and the things that we would needed to do to provide for her. It is the impulse of someone who is loved to the end to want love to continue. And the Lord Jesus, when he's dying on the cross and suffering on the cross, the sins of the world, pauses to make sure that someone cares for the need of his mother. John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. And from that day we're told that Mary was cared for by the apostle John. It's the impulse of someone who is loved to the end to want that love to continue. And this is what we see in the gospel account. And this is what we see as the great desire of the Lord Jesus. And this is what he's emphasizing even in the midst of enduring, in the midst of the great upheaval of the ages, that the testimony or witness of the love of the body of Christ and the love of Christ for his church might be expressed through us. Now, I want to share with you a number of passages in the New Testament that illustrate this same pattern, and we'll see it over and over again. And one of the things we'll see in the New Testament writings, and particularly in the writings of Paul, but we'll also see this in Peter and James and John, is that they will lay down the order something like this. They will lay down doctrine, and they will put down some wonderful truth or some wonderful doctrine. That will be the main corpus of the information in these letters. When they come to conclusion, they then will draw them down to practical applications of how they ought to live and what they ought to do, and what you'll see is the practical application is always primarily love, love for one another. It will either be the first note that sounded, and then everything that comes after it is somewhat of an explanation for how they demonstrate that love, or sometimes you'll see the instruction given to them, and it will climax in this command to love, and then on a few occasions you'll see that there is like a series of passages of applications to conduct that the Christians are to carry out before one another, but the key hinge passage, kind of like the, the passage on which all they turn on is this command to love. You'll see it in almost every single passage that deals with conduct in the believer. We have a little training guide that we do with 
churches around the world and we have nine different lessons and one of the lessons is on discipleship and when we come to the issue of discipleship we show them that there are a series of passages in the New Testament that are almost significantly designed to focus our attention on the conduct or behavior of the Christian, how we're to live. And that's part of what they want to teach individuals. We emphasize that it's something they need to get to, but it's not the first thing they need to get to. They need to first lay down these great doctrines of our faith, but then we need to focus on these various passages. Uh, The other day, just yesterday, I actually went back and I read through all those passages. And there are a number of them. There are about eight or ten of them that are listed out there. Uh, They're like Romans 12 through Romans 15. Hebrews 12 through Hebrews 14, and read them all, and again, you just see it. If you look at this is going to be an assignment I think I'll send you later on, is to read these passages through the week and see that all the detailed expressions of how we're to conduct ourselves or live all draw back to this idea. They're simply ways in which we're being told to live out this commitment to love one another. Let's actually look at this. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul has offered up this tremendous letter that is just rich with theology and and the doctrine of, of sin and of salvation through Jesus Christ alone and of the sanctifying work of the Spirit and God's providential hand, His predestinating hand over the nations. And, and then he comes to an application, the application for their lives. And this is what he says. Let's look at, start in verse 11. Here's certain applications. You're not to be lagging in diligence. Do you see that? Not lagging in diligence. You're to be fervent or committed in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayers, distributing to the needs of the saints. And by the way, by the very way that it's being termed, you see that he's describing some action. He's basically giving descriptors to some actions, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on things high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't think too highly of yourself. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Find a way to be good to people. If it's possible and as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, now, there's actually, prior to this, a series of things that Paul commends to the people of how to live. And then after that, Paul will go on and give an extensive expression of conduct that the Christian is to engage in, but... Go back to verse 9 and 10 now, and let's see where all this instruction rises from. What is it that he's describing? He's giving actions to a certain commitment on their part that they're to have. It's in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly, affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And then he goes into these explanations of the way to live. The way that to live, those, all those notes are all expressions of, they're all ways in which they're to extrapolate out of their lives, expressions of this commitment to live in love, this command to love the brethren and 
as they love the brethren to express their love for one another in the way they engage the world in love as well. Love is, if we look at this, what you understand is love is an action. It's an action. It's the supreme choice of the individual and the full commitment of that person's will to seek the highest good and blessedness and satisfaction of God and of another person or individual. It's our supreme choice in all that we do to seek their highest good, not just my own. Their blessedness, not just not my own. Their satisfaction, just not my own. Now, go to Galatians chapter 5. Let's uh, look at this one as well. I'll just read to you verses uh, 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 5. But you'll see actually portion of Galatians chapter 4, all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6 are applications of how we ought to live again. But it all, it all is drawn from, it all is poured out from this note that you find in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 5. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Now, Galatians starts with this great treatise on the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ so that we're not enslaved to the law trying to earn our salvation by good works and by following the law, but that actually the salvation of Jesus Christ sets us free from a bondage to following the law as some means of our righteousness. Our righteousness comes in all that Christ has offered us. But now he says this as he enters into an application of how to live. For you, brethren have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And now as you go on to read what he says after this, he's simply extrapolating what it looks like when you're loving your neighbor as yourself. He's simply explaining the application and the actions of what that looks like. You can see this in Ephesians as well. Again, Ephesians is this wonderful letter in which wonderful doctrines are being poured out before the church and the very nature of the church and how it's formed by Jesus Christ and through His grace. And and then we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and Paul opens up application to us. He says things like, you know, just application like, I don't want to see any fornication among you. I don't want you to use any kind of filthy jokes with one another. I want you to redeem the time. I I don't want you to be drunk with wine. I want you to submit to your husbands. I want you to love your wives. I want you to obey your parents. I want you to be mindful and respectful of your masters. He gives all this kind of application, but all of this application begins with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. The point from which this application, this practice rises, is in Ephesians Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There, this is what Paul says. Drawing together this theology that he's laid out before them. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. As Christ lived out sacrificial love for us, you do the same thing. And then he gives them all this instruction. You'll see this in Colossians 3 and 4 as well. The, the very climax of the applications that are being given to us in, or the hinge point of the applications that are given in Colossians. The end of this letter is in Colossians 3.14. There he says, in the middle of all that he's saying, he says, above all things, I'm, all this stuff I'm talking about, yeah, the most important thing, above all things, the point from which all this flows down, above all things, he says in Colossians 3.14 is, put on love which is the bond of perfection. You know what? Here's the thing. I know I'm going to give you some more verses here too. I want to keep reading because I know it's interesting we find that in one passage or another passage or another passage, but if you find it in every passage, if everywhere you look you see it, 
You can't ignore it. And you know the problem is, those are oftentimes the things we ignore the most. We see it so often, we just brush by it because we've seen it before. So, Thessalonians. Let me take you to 1 Thessalonians. Paul, again, is sharing his instructions to the Thessalonians and how they ought to live. And in verses 4, 9, and 10, he lays down, you might say, the basis on which all of his applications are made coming out of this theological treatise. He writes, But concerning brotherly love, you do not need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God's teaching you these things. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But I urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I want you to continue to excel in these things. You'll see this in the book of James. You'll see it in the book of Peter. Actually, when I made a list of these applications to the Christian life and our conduct, I, I think I wrote down 1 Peter. I didn't give anything. It was just 1 Peter because it's all a bunch of application. I wrote down James because James is a bunch of application. But James tells us as he's preaching and, and giving application how Christians to live, he tells them that they're to follow the royal law. And the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this is all the other commands are assumed under that. And so everything that James tells them is actually, again, just an application in action of the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Peter, when he begins his treatise, which is all application, in the very first chapter, he tells them again, the high point from which all these things are to flow is love. Love for one another. And so you'll see this in John as well. Read 1 John Chapters 3 and 4, and it's all about the mark of a true believer being that of love for one another, love for one another. So you can see this over and over again. One last place, I'm going to have you look at this. Take the book of Hebrews. Joel, you've made the point. No, we're going to not only make the point, we're going to immerse ourselves in the point this morning. We're going to baptize ourselves in this point. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. If Paul was writing to the Gentiles and giving this great theological treatise, uh, as he establishes the epistles that flow from there in the book of Romans, Hebrews is, in a sense, the same idea, this the great theological treatise that's being written, but now it's going out to, to Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews follows the same model that we see, where you have these wonderful doctrines that are put forth first. And so in the book of Hebrews, it begins with the great doctrines, the great truths that are rooted in the glory of God and the glory of His Son and the goodness of His gospel. You have for 12 chapters in the book of Hebrews an image put forward of the unfathomable greatness of our Savior. There's very little that's said about our conduct in those first passages, those first chapters. There's very little that's said in terms of moral applications. The great founding truths have to be grabbed hold of and they have to be laid up in our minds and then out of that our, our life and the way we live should flow. And so First, Christ is exalted in his personhood, and then Christ is exalted in his position as our prophet and our high priest and our savior and our king, and then Christ is exalted in his work. He's exalted in proclaiming the truth of God and fulfilling the perfect law of God and providing himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God and rising from the dead in order that he might present us forgiven and justified in him in the presence of God. And that's what you read about through these first 12 chapters of Hebrews, and then having taken us through all these wonderful truths, we are brought to an application of how we ought to live. And this is the order of New Testament life. Great truths first, moral duty second. These great truths are not just points of intellectual understanding or comprehension. And they're not also sublime points of emotional exhilaration. 
There are high points of truth from which our conduct is to flow. And those who realize it and embrace it and love the Savior in these truths will be led in the application, in the applications that are being made. And here's the application that the author of Hebrews makes. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. This is very shortly before the temple is going to be destroyed. This is close to 40 years after the church in Jerusalem was birthed on the day of Pentecost. On that day, we read that there was a spontaneous love that they had for one another. And they began to share everything in common according to what everybody's need was. And so there was this tremendous, enriching, infused, spiritual dynamic of love that the Spirit of God poured out upon this newly formed church in Jerusalem. And and now that church has grown and they've sorted out through different doctrinal issues and issues of practice and they've dealt with how they're going to organize themselves and they've also seen individuals who are beginning to go cold in their faith and they're also beginning to see in the book of Hebrews people who are turning back from their Christian faith and they're turning back into Judaism again. They've lost their interest in the hope that Jesus is the Messiah and they're turning back into the rituals of Judaism and the author is writing because he's warning them because he knows the temple's about ready to be destroyed but they're caught up in these things. But here's the one thing that's continued. Even though there's been this flagging church and it's been a suffering church and it's been a persecuted church and they've gone through famines and they've gone through persecution and James who we read about, was the one of the ones who was receiving the teaching of all of it discourses beheaded in Jerusalem before this time. And so their leaders have been put to death before their eyes. And they've seen martyrdom. But here's the one thing that's remained. Within the true church, within those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, who have been transformed by Jesus Christ, they're still loving one another. They're still loving one another. They're gathering together to express that love. The author of Hebrews goes on, and if you want to read chapters 13 and 14, I think that everything that's mentioned, every direction that's given, is a direction on how to continue in that love. But you could just look at a few things. He says here, don't forget to entertain strangers. Here, be hospitable. There's a way to demonstrate your love. And then he says, remember those prisoners who are unchanged are mistreated. There's taking care of and ministering to those who are suffering. Then he says, the marriage bed is honorable and, and undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers will be judged. And love one another by being faithful and loving within your marriage. And he says, let your conduct be without a love of money or covetousness. Be content with what you have. Let contentment rule your life. Why? Because it's the loving thing to do. And you're discontent and you're unsatisfied. You're, you're not loving God and you're not loving those around you. This is how you love. What do we see in all these things? We see that love comes to us because we've experienced the life and the truth of the gospel bearing in upon us. That we're brought into love by the life of the Savior who loved his disciples to the end but wasn't satisfied to stop loving them at the end. Instead, he filled us with himself. So through us, he could continue loving his people and we could be a people that are noted above everything else by our love. And we see that our ability to endure in love is an ability to endure simply in yielding ourselves to his leading and his guiding. By the way, when I fail to love... And when I fail to act in a loving way and I go back to evaluate it, I know who led out in that moment. And it wasn't Jesus. I know who was predominating in my heart in that moment and I know it wasn't Jesus. I've developed a little habit here just in the last year. I've got children that contact me on a regular basis and sometimes I'm happy to hear with them but sometimes I'm irritated. You know? Sometimes I'm not happy with what's going on. And 
But you know, it's not nice to call dad and have him say, answer the phone saying, hello, hello, right? So when the phone is ringing, and it's nice now, you know who's calling on your phone. I see it. And I remind myself that I love them. I remind myself that they're a gift that God gave me. And God gave them to me with one, one command above everything else, to love them. And I thank God for the opportunity. I literally, I let that go through my mind. And I answer the phone, and I want my voice to be sound as if that truth is said in my heart. Hello. <laughs> How are you today, dear? How are you, honey? What a good way to start out. Jesus leading us in our interactions with others. Obviously, see here, if you look at this as well, you know that love is an action, not just a feeling. It's not just the thrill you get when someone walks in the room, right? It's not just uh, some romantic notion. It's commitment to carry out deeds. And by the way, just so you know, God's love is infinite. God is able to love everyone, everywhere with the same intensity, and it's very personal as well. Our love isn't. I can't do it. I can only love so many. And so that's why God calls us in the community. That's why we're called to live together. That's why the church is formed in these local settings, so that we can love one another. It's not possible for you to love every Christian on the face of the earth. You're not really called to, in a sense. You're, you're called to love the Christian who's sitting next to you, and the one you're fellowshipping with regularly and consistently. And How do we love them? Well, I think we're supposed to be together often. I think we're to find ways to be together, and we're to seek out ways to love one another. We're to get to know one another, and and I think actually we're supposed to do it enduringly. Someone has asked me when we started this church what was my vision for the church was years ago. I said, well, I don't have a lot that I'm envisioning. I just want to grow old in a community of people. Why? Because I think that's where we learn to love. And by the way, if you grow old in a community of people, then you go back through all those applications, what not to do, forgive, don't be impatient, don't take vengeance, don't, whatever it is, you'll get every opportunity. You'll get every opportunity to practice all of that advice in a loving way. You'll get it all if you'll stick together. But if you go to some place where you can just go to some poster place where you can lose yourself and nobody knows you're there and you can slip in and slip out or you can just get your church on uh, some webcast that's being put online or on the radio station and you can feel good about yourself, you cannot fulfill this predominant command of our Savior and this predominant desire of our Savior that we live and love for one another. It requires fellowship with one another. And it's how we apply this scripture. Well, off of my cell phone, into our presence with one another. We're going to eat the meal here now. We're going to remember the context in which it was given, what Christ was going to do for us. And we're going to know that in all of it, the great, great desire of his heart was a love for his disciples for one another, and that the very meal they ate was to be the expression of that love he has for them and that he wants them to have for one another. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, plunge us into your Holy Spirit. Plunge us into your life. Plunge us into responses that are not drawn up from our nervous system, our prejudices, our desired outcomes. Plunge us, O oh God, into responses to one another that are regulated 
by the Spirit of Christ which desires and longs to express his love and his patience and his kindness and his gentleness to all. To bless and to be good. Plunge us into by your Spirit a deep love for you. A great awareness of your love for us. Help us, dear God, to be a community that invites people to be among us so that they can see how much we love the Savior and how much we love one another. And, Lord, give us obedience so that when we see the opportunity and that moment, we express it. Help us to be disciplined, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but as we see the day approach and the awfulness of our hour, how much more that we kindle the light of love with one another and we carry it out into the world in which we live. Let us realize that even as we come before this table in Jesus' name, amen.